Hello, and welcome to Soccer Sense Making, where we dig into coaching topics like practice design, language, and tactics. We are coaches having authentic conversations where we can question cultural norms. My name is Julian Khalili, a passionate coach and aspiring researcher who wants to improve our field. I believe quality conversations are a good place to start. Enjoy and keep it real. What's going on, guys? We're back for another podcast here. Um, thanks for tuning in. We are going to talk about this concept of the training week. So designing a training week as a coach and related concepts to that, like managing load, what do we think of it, um, and you know the kind of tactical periodization of the week, th- these kinds of things. Um, I wanted to just start it really general and start with Ivan and say, what do you think of, of, um, this idea of managing the week and setting up the week in a certain way to manage whatever you need to manage? Yeah. Welcome back everybody. Uh, this is Ivan again. I'm the Academy director for El Paso Locomotive UFC. If somebody missed the previous, um, episode and yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept just because historically, if you're looking at it from, um, from you know how has this become even a part of the conversation uh, when i was a young player and i'm turning 32 in march uh, 20 years ago let's say uh, this was not part of the conversation within the coaches or at least in hungary where i grew up it wasn't um as a matter of fact i believe that in college for example it's still not a conversation because i still hear horror stories where you know a college team would lose a would lose a game on a on a saturday and uh you know would have a fitness day on a on a monday so you know it's it's uh it's one of those um conversations that i think it became more prevalent as the licenses and everything else became more important in the in the world of uh, soccer coaching however i do think that now it uh we say it in hungarian we have a saying that you fall on the other side of the horse uh you fell way on the other side of the horse. So basically you, the, how do you say the swing, like it went too far or, or it went completely the other side. I don't know how many of these things I can, I can list, but the, but the point is that it went too far. And uh, that is my basic point of view of training load. I think that a lot of people that might not be soccer specific people gained a lot of attention and gained a lot of power with the attention um, to talk about the game as if it is a, um, you know, like a motoric linear um, um, situation where you need to plan everything ahead of time, and that that plan uh, is going to determine um, even soccer-specific things. I heard um, in Hungary again, where I'm from, where when this whole thing came in um, about you know how many kilometers they need to run in a training session in order to hit the target, the training load target, and stuff like that. I've I've heard where there is you know fitness coaches on the side of the of the practice session and they are you know because of the GPS giving them live data, um, they literally telling them that that's it that's it for that guy he he had his load and now he needs to be done with training session. Meanwhile, the learning or whatever the concept that they were uh, training or what they're trying to improve upon um, wasn't there yet. Now 
a lot of people I hear it already. I hear it already that the people are that are like uh, in this world are saying to me, yelling at me, like, "No, that's just places where they interpret it the wrong way. That is not how it's being run." And I'm and I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, at the same time, I will say that the training load, I think, is one of the just one of the one of the concepts that we need to consider it's not the entire concept i think it's a framework that people tend to hide behind to you know um try to hide their lack of knowledge or ideas about the game itself and it's a perfect tree to hide behind in hide and seek um just to begin to begin with that, I, and I think that's that gave yeah. enough ammunition to Gonzalo and Sasha to and to you, Julian, to continue. So what I'm hearing is, um, you don't you don't think too highly of it in the sense of it being the. No, I think it's needed. Kind of soul reason to design and base your week around off of like load metrics. No, I, I let the others talk as well, but I do know, I, I think it's important. And as a matter of fact, I think it's very important for injury prevention. I think it's very important to to make sure that your team is ready for the weekend uh, mentally because we cannot separate uh, the whole into parts. Uh, you know, when you are mentally fatigued, you're going to be fatigued physically. And when you're physically fatigued, you're going to be mentally fatigued. And so you need to consider yeah. those things. And I think it's very important because at the end of the day, I want to win the game on Saturday. So I need to do everything and every little concept that helps to prepare the team to to win, I will take take advantage of, and I want to know more about the physical preparation. I had a I had a head coach here at the academy yeah. that I'm coaching that is that was the the head coach for the first team. His name is John Hutchinson, and he's um, he's now an assistant coach in the Japanese first division. He's an excellent excellent coach, and he had a very specific idea of how to run his training load situation. And I learned a lot from him. And I thought I thought he was Chinese in the beginning, but then you know I I understood a lot of parts to it, and I said that you know it's important. I'm not necessarily following his methods but i took away something about it about injury prevention and about being fresh and about the players not feeling that they're overworked or underworked so it's a really interesting situation which you need to consider but i what i just wanted to highlight that a lot of people take advantage of it and it's being used uh-huh. way too much that was my point like um i mean i think we can all agree that it is important to observe how much a player is running throughout the practice week or in a game because how much he exerts himself um, affects him going forward, right? Like I played last night and I couldn't play after five minutes anymore. So then I, I affect it affects me how I play, right? And if we train two hours or one hour on a Monday, that would have effect on the performance of the players Tuesday, depending on what we do. So I think we can all agree that how much a player does in practice physically exerts himself it affects his performance and so as ivan alluded to is if we are thinking about well how can we best structure this week that on the weekend and we're talking about performance age groups here but if how can i structure this week so that on saturday they are in their peak performance that they're not tired from the practice week because then they look like me after five minutes yesterday and that's not good so i think it is important 100 to consider that but I also feel, as Ivan said, that, you know, we, we've taken this too far sometimes. And um, as coaches generally, we're trying to have like easy tools, right? Solutions that we, oh, look, this is this is fine scientifically proven. This is what we have to do, right? And so we, we go to experts, um, physical experts that know how much um, 
don't know how many steps we can run or what our heart rate should be or those signs and we measure them and then based on that purely only that we start to make decisions and we justify our decisions with that and i think that is too far because there are so many things that affect everything that i mean that's the expertise of the coach right to evaluate all of that um and make make the best decisions and not just go with okay we had a game yesterday so today we train everybody trains at 50 percent no matter that one of them was a center back and one was a center midfielder maybe or one played 90 minutes and one played 60 minutes like there are things to consider that go way beyond what the numbers are going to tell you um you know one had a bad night of sleep and the other one had a good night of sleep so yeah that that i think um we can all agree it is it is important to consider it's just about how we consider it i think we can we can discuss and probably depends also on the level the age um the amount of training and everything together yeah to just kind of keep going what sasha was saying is like uh, and it's been i think kind of the trend a little bit that we've discussed in the last few podcasts is just like this um underneath this like desire to want to fragment things to understand them better um is just kind of like i think historically the the paradigm and the philosophy that has like been successful in science and so i think a lot of that has carried over into sport um and it's interesting and i'm sure you guys have all kind of read like read the history of like periodization how it started with like the individual sports with the olympic sports with the weightlifting with the sprinting that had like fantastic success uh, in those sports because it was like there was like one time in the year where there was competition where you needed to be at your peak and then uh, it would go back down so it was very natural to kind of like bring the athlete like that but then uh, and they started to carry that i think like into the team sports and uh, but i think you run into like two big problems first is that it's not an individual sport like you need to be able to harmonize the team. The team needs to understand how they're going to play with each other. Um, and then uh, the other problem is that we want peak form the whole year, the whole season. We don't want peak form for the last two games or the first two games. So um, I think there starts to emerge the conversation that like periodization, if if it is to be used like in soccer and football, is not from like a physical standpoint it's you have to i think kind of take the athlete and the team as a whole um and try to understand like all the factors that impacted all the factors that impact performance the social aspect the psychological aspect the physiological aspect all of those things and how you're trying to plan and manage that throughout the season yeah that that sounds really good um I'm just kind of backtrack onto what Sasha said for a second. And I'm wondering just so we're all on the same page, what is a, the performance age group? And when we're talking about the performance age group, is that where these conversations are more important about, well, if we're talking about the load management fragmented from everything versus what Gonzo and Ivan are talking about, which is more about everything is connected to everything. And to fragment one part of it just doesn't give you enough information as to what the plan you're weak around. 
or enough um you can't plan with it you know it's not it's just one aspect by itself that doesn't exist without the other aspects it's kind of what i'm hearing so- so I, I had a comment on this because, uh, you know, as the as our listeners know, or maybe don't know, but some of them might know that, you know, I worked under Sasha. And so we had these meetings where uh, we would be sitting in a room um, and we would talk about the game. And, and Sasha, one of the things that he always brings up as a point is, uh, hey, we need to consider the age group. And I think that's a very good point. And I, you know, it made me, of course you know, trying to be intellectually ready for a comment like that and 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 think about like, okay, not shoving it away right away. Like, okay, like that's not something that I want to like consider so much, but it is true. Like you need to consider. However, I will say that when it comes to like training load, I think that again, like very similar to what we talked about last week, um, which is going to sound very anti data, anti-statistics, anti-science, meanwhile it is not, that I think a lot of times you need to observe and make decisions based on your observations. Now, science is helping you. So like if you have a GPS system, and right now uh, I was able to, as a youth coach, you'd really have, you will have more and more, I think, access to these kind of things. But I was lucky enough to have multiple locations in my career to use a, to use a, to use GPS uh, or some kind of measuring uh, device that will support your observation. Uh, I give you an example. Like l- lately, uh, we used we used uh, some GPS on our players here at the at the at the U20s, our reserve team, our secondary team, to our professional team. And turns out, usually, what they say is that when you have a game, that's if that's like that's one unit, like the load is one unit during the game. You want to kind of do between two and two and a half units during the week total. Okay, meaning that if you run 10 kilometers during the, but this is very basic. This is not, again, I'm not the scientist, so don't quote me on this. But if you run, you know, 10 kilometers in a game, then you want to have during the week, uh, they should run no more than 20 to 25 kilometers. That's like average. Uh, Obviously, it's a scale. So if you're five kilometers, then it's um, 10 to 15 kilometers. Is that what it is? Um, So, yeah. So in other words, in other words, you know, two, two and a half is the magic number. So it turned out that in a random training week, uh, my team's was between three and four, um, which is, you know, over, over train, um, basically. Meanwhile, I just ran the same, same training sessions that I always done, you know, with, you know, middle of the week, highest load, end of the week, lowest load. Uh, but it turns out that we overworked and I I started to pay attention to the time. So now I'm not doing six sets of the rondo, but I'm doing four sets of the rondo. I'm not, maybe I'm cutting the, the small-sided game at the end because I would do it just because to make the kids happy because then they can play small-sided, but maybe it's not needed every single week. So, um, so like I used to pay attention, I, I started to pay attention to that and then that helped. And why am I doing that? And that's why I'm talking about you need to consider the young players or not. Oh, sorry, the age groups, what Sasha always says, and that's his mantra that like you need to consider the age, you need to consider the age, which is very true. But I also think that you also need to consider the environment the most. Part of the environment is the age group, but you can run a professional training load at U12 because it will benefit them the same way as you can do with a professional team, I think. And we have saying things like, 
hey, like, oh, the U12s, they can, you know, they recover quicker. Yes, they recover quicker. So, like, we know that, like, you know, it's not going to hurt them if we play a half an hour more on a Wednesday. But if you always play a half an hour more on a Wednesday, it might hurt them. So I think the age group is an important piece, but I also just think the basic ideas of training load should be considered um, when you're training a, a team because all you want to do is win on the weekend, even though I know that U12 is development first, but, you know, the, the game itself creates to win. So um, you want to do everything possible from the early ages to, to, to secure that. I don't know if that makes Ivan, sense. Ivan, can you go into what, what you just said with professional workload? What do you mean with that? Like uh, the GPS, and right? Like the U12 G- can the G- also run. Like, like for example, yeah. like, uh, like it's not. It is the idea is the basic idea is in then the then the when the game happens after the game you wanna slowly get into it in the first training session, slowly increase the load. The middle of the week you should go if you have one game on the weekend back to back, right? Like not not a tournament, like not the American nonsense mm-hmm. where you have seven games in a weekend, just one game on Saturday and then the, another game on the next Saturday. So on Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday, depends on what your prioritization is, when is your off day, depending on your off day, you want to do the highest load in the middle of the week and then you're going to go down to refresh and to, to be ready. Like for example, John Hutchinson, again, the professional coach that was here, he had Thursday as the week off from Saturday to Saturday. So he had... Saturday game, uh, I don't remember if Sunday he did the recovery on Sunday or he had an off day and then the Monday was uh, recovery or off. Like what, I think Sunday was off and then Monday recovery, Tuesday training session, Wednesday highest load, Thursday off, Friday pregame, Saturday game again. Like that was his prioritization. Right now my U20s have a little different one that I don't really like. I have a Monday recovery uh, back into the training uh, a day, Tuesday um, highest load, Wednesday off, Thursday tactical minus two, and then Friday pregame. Uh, I like where Tuesday is off, so then I can hit, like I can hit the hardest on Wednesday. But some people say that because you recover the best uh, after the high, well, you you need to recover after the highest load, and you can't recover from it for two days. As a result, when you have a Wednesday highest load, Thursday should be off. That's why John Hutchinson did Thursday off. So, you know, it, it depends. But I think this idea, this idea that we are using with the professionals can be used with the U12 team as well. You know, you can be giving the highest yeah. load on a Friday just because it's U12. You can't physically, mentally, uh, tactically, like you need to follow what is on the science books of like highest load middle of the week and then lower at the end of the week. Uh, what what becomes and sorry I'm gonna let you talk but what becomes interesting is when you have two training sessions a week right like because it's a U12 team so how do you prioritize there I'm putting my hands up and I'm gonna listen to you <laughs> well I, I and obviously you know a lot more about this than I do um, I based don't on think where so. you've coached in the past and the age groups and your responsibilities um, what I just generally, so when we talk about, okay, we have a game on Saturday and then we do a recovery session, right? Or our workload is load. I, my experience, like 11 or 12 year olds are not, do not need a recovery session because they're not tired. They play this the game, 60 saying. minute. Game I, I don't know day, if I agree. And they, and, and the, in my experience, they are not. How about and, the emotional, how about the emotional and the, and the, sorry for interrupting and I, and I don't want to take on the show, but yeah. I, you know, I interrupt because I, I want, I think it's important to make the point. This is what we're talking about complexity, right? Like I'm not talking about, okay, so now you're going to play another game on Monday. Yes. They physically able to play another game on Monday, right? Like, because they're not tired is what you called. 
However, how about the emotional load? How about the, the, the cognitive load? That needs to be considered. So maybe you mm-hmm. do now a, their favorite game. Maybe you're still playing, but you do a favorite game that you ran before, a small-sided game, 5v5, just mm-hmm. put the ball in and play. Physically, they will be able to cope. And mentally, it's going to be a lower load than the high emotions of an important game on the weekend. That's what I mean. Yeah, and generally, I think, I th- and I agree. And I, for me, it's emotional. I would make the same argument. I don't think that a U12 game is as emotional draining as a U17, you know, almost professional kind of game where the games are close, where playing time is distributed differently, where decisions matter way more uh, in the or the consequences of the player's action matter way more than a U12 game. Um, now, as a coach, I can create also an environment that has a different feeling for it um, that can make it more consequential. But generally, a U12 player, after losing the ball game, he is upset for five minutes and he moves on and wants his ice cream still. Like they are still, the, the way they think about themselves, the way they think about the game, the meaning in their life is a little bit different. Um, they generally play for fun, which might not be the same for a U17 player anymore. And the outcome of a game might affect a U17 player differently. So yeah. in that sense, and, and I, yeah. definitely you are 100% right, you should consider everything, not just about physical load, but emotional load, right? There's something about, when we talk about training load, we talk about performance, but we also talk about, of course, injury prevention, which we haven't talked about, right? Like your muscles are not being able to, because they are tired to to fire as quick at the right time. It's just a little bit off. And a U12 player does not really have that, right? right? He doesn't exert his muscles to that degree that there are issues like that happening. Um, Then comes the age of 13, 14, 15, where you're dealing with growth spurts, where we might actually have to take a different approach based on where the player is and what he struggles with. Um, And then for me, um, the performance age group, Ivan, what you talked about, um, where you should model yourself more after a professional workload environment um, 100% agree I just don't see when we start talking about U12 then why are we not also talking about U10 or U8 or U6 at what age does it become appropriate to model the professional workload and why are we modeling at a certain age right why we can say U12 why can we say U10 what is the what are the things that are happening in that child at that age that make it appropriate for him to do that workload what what I think what I would jump in there is like, um, I agree. I think at the younger age groups, like the physiological kind of um, aspect of like performance plays, I think less a role just because like the output, the strength, the the, the amount of muscles I have, just, the output is not as intense, right? So they're able to recover um, more quickly. Where I think, I think you can start to make a little bit of an argument is that I don't think... Um, kind of designing some sort of overarching routine for the organism to adapt to, I don't think is a bad thing. You know, naturally as human beings too, we're like accustomed to like the circadian rhythm, right? Like the sun is up, we wake up, the sun goes down, we should go to sleep. Um, And kids also kind of have a natural routine and rhythm that they go through their life. Um, And I think that can be, uh, I, I would argue it can be a good thing. And I think in terms of the training, you could start to have some sort of routine that could link to kind of your idea of what you're trying to develop in them, right? Maybe let's say you only train two times a day. Maybe it's important for them one day to train like very individual things, individual competition so that they learn like, I need to be able to like solve these problems. I can rely on myself, you know, and it's a good thing to develop that socially and technically. 
And then maybe you have another day where they work maybe in, in, in groups and now they have to learn how to cooperate. And you can start to, I think, kind of prepare the organism to, to train in that pattern. You know, this day is a little more individual. Another day maybe is a little more collective. And you're, in a way, you're periodizing, but it's not like based on like the physiological stuff. It's, it's trying to take, I think, into account the bigger picture, if that makes sense. And you don't have to do the same thing every Monday and every Wednesday. Um, you can still kind of have a general pattern. But, and then you just kind of change the stimulus when the, within those days. But there's like where I would say maybe um, to have some sort of pattern, even at the younger age groups, could make some sense. Absolutely. It's just based on that environment that you are at, right? And it mm -hmm. could be also when we talk about age group, it's also about the player's um, motivation to be there can affect that too, right? Mm -hmm. You can have, I'm working with U10 recreational players. So they train twice a week. They don't play a game on the weekend. They just have two sessions versus, right. you know, I could be in a pre-academy where they train three to four times a week and have a game on the weekend and go right. to tournaments. So the age itself is one thing, but the other is the, the motivation of the players. And so what I do, for example, with this recreational program, we train on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and their passion, I mean, they want to play soccer. That's why yeah. they are there, right? Yeah. They, they're the more... Um, constrained exercises we do and they are not heavily constrained but they are constrained where hey we're going towards an end zone versus a goal like that affects them because mm -hmm. they can't shoot the ball anymore right? right there's like so i have to be very much aware of that that i give them enough free freedom to just play a game and that's what usually we would do on a wednesday we call it the game day and uh -huh. then on tuesday would be what we call the skill development day, where we do more 2v2, 2v1s, like and they also know this, and then they can expect certain things, knowing that on Wednesday, hey, we play almost for the whole time uh, with games, and they can make their own teams, and there comes motivation from that. Um, yeah, so I 100% I agree. You look at your environment that you're in, you look at the motivation of the players, the age characteristics um, that are important to consider, and then create some kind of periodization, I guess. Um, mm -hmm that fits what that environment is like needs. Yeah. Well, what we're talking about now, I like, about now, I like I think, those themes. Yeah. Same, same. And we're getting into this idea of, um, what we do at training and, um, what I find just from my personal experience here, and I don't want to speak in universals back to what we were talking about at U10, U11, U12, they can play nonstop guys. They can play so much. And they need the night off, maybe a day off, and then they're fine. Okay, like these kids love it. They, they love to play. And I think a lot of times they are put into, it's the other thing happening. They're put into systems that is kind of over-periodizing them when their children, who in my opinion, in the way I would design weeks, is to have a lot of neutral-based training sessions where it isn't even designed specifically towards a particular team topic or concept and it's not designed essentially to bring out certain types of skills and variations between these skills like passing and dribbling like i don't design it for that all the time i think every single training session for these ages i will have neutral type 5v5 things maybe smaller maybe bigger where i'm it's about them playing they might pick their own teams they might you know go in there and make their own rules, whatever. But it's about them owning their environment and playing. And I'm not worried about the load with them at all. You know, but when we get talking about older age groups and we think about 
like uh, muscle injuries and things we have to worry about with that. I think we we have to balance how we kind of design the week based off of kind of what Sasha's talking about now, like skill training or team coordination training or like if it's U17, U19, are we talking about performance training? In my opinion, I think there's a difference here. Even though skill adaptability type training is also training for performance, I think that when you get into like a more performance age group, you do things that might be a little bit different than you would be that's specifically designed for performance. You know, like maybe more set piece work, maybe more like organizational team tactics than I would with like U11, U12. I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts on that, guys? The the one little thing I'll jump in really quick that's that stuck out to me uh, when we speak about the load. I feel like the load is also like very numerical. Also, you know, we think about it in distance or um, in the, all the different little metrics that like the uh, maybe like the GPS can give you. But again, it's like you're losing kind of the qualitative assessment of like the performance, you know, it's like, what are the actions that are being performed? You know, are they, are they sprints? Is it like uh, running for long periods of time at a certain uh, speed? Is it like uh, sharp changes of uh, the acceleration, deceleration? Um, I think all of those pieces matter. You know, I think, I don't know if you do like five sprints because you're sprinting back to your goal to defend the goal, maybe it's more exhausting than doing five sprints with the ball going and scoring five goals, you know? And so I think those are some of the like qualitative, I think assessments when we like speak about load that um, I think people don't, don't consider. Okay. So I think, I think about the accelerations and decelerations. I think I always feel very interested about that. Um, just because, you know, so depend the game, the game forever is changing and it's not, it's unpredictable and it's never going to be the same. So as a result, how am I going to be able to predict the number of accelerations or decelerations, in a in a training session, what, what's needed? Like, how can I determine that? I don't think that now that, though, that, that is the level or that is a line where I, I, I feel a little bit like, okay, I'm, you know, people, people label me sometimes like anti-science like i'm not anti-science i'm definitely interested in how is this helping or how is this helping the, the children and how is this helping the players um if you're talking about professionals but i draw the line there because i have a player who you know we play an over the river run though right and um you know that means that if you give it away you need to now sprint to the other side and defend there and then you if you win it then you can stay on that on that um area but there's a player that, you know, never gives the ball away. He's the best player. He keeps the ball all the time. Um, and as a result, the way that that game goes is that if you're giving the ball away, you better sprint to the other side. And that's not a, that's not a, a, a coaching decision. That's not like, you know, me deciding that, that, that. That's just like the dynamic of team sports. And that's what they, they do. Um, so I, when that happens, my player that is very good, We'll never go and sprint to the other side to defend. So he's never going to get the acceleration and deceleration. Uh, but in the game, it is very similar. So since he, he doesn't give it away, he will need to make different different movements than the one that always gives it away, who's always finding him. So it's like, uh, you know, I, I'm having a hard time with the cookie cutter. Hey, these are the number so of accelerations and decelerations that need to be hit in this training session in order to be the physical prioritization to be right. 
And how about space management? Some players like, and you know, I'm not going to use the word messy because, you know, that's like too drawn out. But the same player that I'm thinking about that never gives the ball away in the over the river, he's a 10, who lately, lately started to move everywhere. He wanted to play right back. He wanted to be a left wing. He wanted to be a four. And I had to tell this Mexican boy that, um, uh, you know, you need to calm down and not run that much. And, and stay in your position a little bit. And so if we are looking at it from a, from a load standpoint, the numbers will show that he's actually doing less uh, during the game from week to week because my, my instruction uh, in a hefty and aggressive uh, halftime talk to stay in your position and play from there because your best is to be between lines and give the final pass, the numbers will show that he's actually running less working if you don't see me because it's great radio right now because i'm doing hand gestures but i'm doing the quote unquote thing it he is working less or not as hard as before and so that's why i think it's misleading to look at some some very specific numbers i think it, i think the game mm-hmm. is very unpredictable and i think um and complex i think the i think these kind of conversations and these kind of numbers and the way that we approach it also needs to represent that it's like that Todd Bean story that he tells about um, uh, Johan Cruyff. And they're like showing him how much a player, I think it was like Javi, was running. And they, they showed him and he's like, why are you showing me this? Right? And, and they're like, we want to show you how, how much he's run. And he's like, well, I want him to run less. You know? <laughs> like, why are you showing me this? It doesn't mean anything. And it's just kind of a funny example, I think, where it's like yep. we, we don't look we look at it as numbers and not the context in which the running's happening is like, like to Ivan's point. If you're playing in a certain way and you're having success, like in the Rondo example, you won't run as much. Yeah. So that's why it's an individual based thing. It needs to be, it needs to be, it needs to be considered. But, but I also, I think it starts with observation and people forget about that. Like, observation is the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of everything. And I think it's a really hard skill to talk about as well, because I think it's, I I don't know. I'm having a hard time teaching this skill to my, to my colleagues because they feel that act, the action man, right? We talked about this last podcast, action man, action man, action man, that you need to show up and it needs to be, it needs to be, you know, energetic and it needs to come from you and it needs to. And so, I, I was thinking about this, like, what do I do that I think, like, creates the environment for the players that to, like, okay, so if anybody shows up at any given moment, it looks like it's competitive, it looks like the kids know the rules, it looks like there's a game. And I think that it comes with experience. You have to have a lot of training sessions run to know, like, how a certain exercise works well and a certain type of thing works well, and you need to be well-versed in that. But I also think that the more preparation you can put in, in order to create an environment where the game looks like a game, you know, rules are clear. You, it's not controversial. You thought about like, okay, if you make this rule, how is that going to affect the behavior of the player? And then how is that rule going to come out if they cheat on that rule? Like you need to think about the reverse side of things too. And then when this happens, now you can, because the reason why I'm saying this is because training session design that we talked last week and this is very much connected. Because now you can come out because you are doing it as a routine. You know how this game is going to look like. You know the rules that are going to work. You know what's going to kind of behavior going to come out of it. And now you can observe. Because if you are going in there without knowing how this is going to look like, that's why it's really, you need to be really 
brave and creative to start something new, to do new exercises. And that's where experience comes in because all of a sudden when you do a new situation, players might not react the way that you did. And you were so focused on making it game-like or making it, uh, you know, good speed and the players enjoying it. And it's not a nonsense session where balls are running out all the time and the players are not touching the ball and stuff like that. Then you ca- that you cannot observe. And then if you cannot observe, the training load conversation goes to trash. There's no training load conversation because all you are worried about is the training session to look good. I've seen people like, uh, we call it in Hungarian, pigs on ice. You know, it, like imagine the pig on ice, right? Like not really stable, right? Like uh, wobbling left and right and falling. And so like I've seen coaches like pigs on ice trying to make sure that the exercise is working well before they could consider anything. They didn't even realize what the kids are doing because the observation cannot even come to fruition because they are worrying about the exercise itself. So all in all, I do think that the training load conversation is connected to the training, training session design. And the training yeah. session design has to be taken care of first because then you can observe. And when you can observe, then you can kind of have a feeling uh, of the training load. And then you can, if you're lucky, you can go into your, your coach's room and get the GPS data and compare your notes, your feelings, what you observed with the numbers that, that, that was given to you. I have a, okay, one example I want to share. Actually, I have two, but uh, one uh, in a, a little short while ago was a director for Richmond United, uh, national level programming with ECNL and DA. And we had a coach um, and we talk about training loads. So I, like sometimes when I hear that, I hear about repetitions. Like that's for me, how many repetitions are we planning, right? Um, and he did a finishing exercise and I was guiding him on in that session. I was observing his session and um, it was a finishing exercise with some passing and then ending up with a cross and runners coming in, right? So it was a little bit of a sprint component. There was a little bit of a um, winger dribbling down the line. And he did it for 20 minutes. And I counted the repetitions at the players and his lines were so long and the passing pattern to get to the actual finish was so long that a player on average ended up in 20 minutes with three or four finishes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so, but... He was he was not aware of that because, you know, I counted it. He didn't count that. He was worried about that the cross was played in a certain way, that the runner would come in a certain angle. He did not pay attention to which player actually runs through that. And when we discussed it afterwards, I mean, he was excellent about acknowledging that and like, oh my, that was not what I planned. Like three runs in twenty minutes, that's not what he wanted. He wanted way more repetition. Um, so, but to Ivan's point, like observing an exercise not for the exercise, but observing it also from okay, this exercise is running, so what is happening now with the repetitions of the players? Are we getting enough um, physical um, stimulation out of it, for example? I, I I think that was an example worth sharing. Um, and the other thing, what Ivan um, said very early um, about, I forgot what he was actually talking about, but this <laughs> example came to my mind with a coach. Observing, looked, you need to get better with observing. Me. Yes, thank you very much. Observing, that is actually what the your comment was um it was about that's where everything starts and i had a coach who also looked for me for guidance and we drove a long we had a road trip we drove for 12 hours so we talked a lot of things uh in this this uh, car ride and one of the things he says like why don't you just tell me what to do as a coach right why don't you tell me just the exercise i need to do or this is what you want to do and it's that's not how it goes because i'm not at your sessions right you need to observe and you come and decide um, 
how the player is responding and you have to change it. There's no such cookie cutter template that I can do with you that I do with another age group. It doesn't work that way. Um, but that was really difficult for him because he wanted the control. He wanted the solution. He wanted to execute the best possible way that somebody with experience gives to them. And that doesn't work. So when we talk about training loads, like we have to observe the players in the moment and then based on that, make decisions about how we, how we structure that practice week and the, the session. I mean, that's a hundred percent this concept of where art meets science. And I was at the emergence conference last week and that was the name of their conference. It was like art meeting science and like the links between the two. And if we're talking about numerics and GPS tracking data and the sprint repetitions and all this stuff, that is just like data in a way. But the concept you're talking about, Sasha, with the coach and or being in this environment where they're not seeing the bigger picture of everyone, of of how you design this session, like I don't, not, not empathetically, like what's the word? But it's the, it's the word that it brings together something that is um, you, that you have to adapt and you have to be flexible with. And it's never going to look the way that you planned it. And it's about observing that this, like Ivan talks about. And this skill of observing is not something that we're taught in coaching licenses. We're taught what you're talking about, Sasha. We're taught that you have a plan beforehand and that this plan is going to go like this. And if this happens, it's going to go, you're going to do this. You know, and they even teach us to coach games like that. If we go down one nil, you put in this player, you change to this formation. And it's all not happening in the moment. You know, and you have to be able to be adaptable, just like the players need to be adaptable as a coach and based off of what you observe happening. And that is a skill in itself. And it's, I always hear this phrase, I think from Carl Woods, I heard it. Like if you, if you study birds, right? If you study birds really well and you know everything about birds in your area, like I'm in Virginia and I know every single Virginia bird, right? And I know it from my book and I know they're, their habitat habitat styles and I know what they eat and I know their flight patterns, right? When I'm going around looking for that bird, I'm looking at for my knowledge of the bird rather than the bird itself. I'm not looking at like the, the bird in reality, what's happening. If, and if you're not careful, you can observe your own knowledge rather than what's really happening. Okay. I, I, I think have that's a really that, good concept. That's inspiring. I, I think it's, or interesting. Um, let me, let me just share this because that's, that... are you saying something? Can't hear me? Damn it. Yeah, it's Ivan is off, right? He probably wants to argue that it wasn't him, the coach that I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> How about now? Well, I think, another... oh, we can uh, hear you. Okay. What, what the hell is happening You're with back this now. Um, so you, you will cut this, right? Julian? <laughs> are you gonna cut this maybe you know i'm gonna have the ai do it see okay, if it'll cut right. it. it's even like okay, good um so sorry for that but i had some thoughts on that uh so first of all because you were talking about how like it is you the observation is through your own lenses so whatever you observe is already on your own lenses and it's not necessarily the reality all the time i think that i think that and and, and this is now gonna be a little bit controversial okay uh because I think also talking about the observation, the topic of observation, 
uh, we need to be a little bit more honest when it comes to the coach's ability to observe. Uh, you might mistake me for yelling, instructing, motivating, coaching, but I'm observing because my observation skills have been advanced by the places that I've been and the methodology that I had to use and the people that I was surrounded with that like made me, forced me to observe and, and stay quiet for long training sessions. I, I had a technical director from, from who worked in La Masia who told me to, I need to run a whole training session without talking. And we did a whole training session without talking. Um, then another training session, we did a whole training session without cones. Um, another training session, we did a whole training session without bibs on. And if you look at those training sessions, cool. those training sessions were run just as competitively as any other ones. For example, the, the one without using cones was the easiest because using the, the field lines is just so easy. Like, you know, I can do a, you know, you give me 18 players, I can do a whole training session just inside of the 18. Um, so it's, it's a very easy one if you think about it. But, you know, it made made us basically the point of the exercise was is to learn how to observe better when you cannot communicate with them all you do is the ball and the cones and then you just throw the ball in and say here are the pennies like you don't say anything you just point at the pennies um and you know they, they come up with their own rules they communicate and you just like you just you know shrug your shoulder and say like okay it's your game and you have to observe now the behaviors and things like that comes out of it really beautifully but why am I saying that is because it might sound arrogant, but my observation skills, I think when it comes to youth soccer, have been advanced in the last couple of years because of these places that I've been. Um, and so I think that the experiences that you had previously also help you with the observation skills that you can that you have. You need to have experiences. You need to see multiple age groups. You see, you need to see multiple teams. You need to see multiple geographic uh, locations and and socioeconomic backgrounds in order to understand the, the 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 training session and the players' behavior that you are observing. Then, of course, and this is where it gets interesting. Um, once you are once you are advanced with your observation skills, what do you do with it and how you interpret what you've seen because of the filter, what Julian said? I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, very, that's a deep, 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 maybe even too deep uh, conversation that, uh, that coaches should have. Sasha, you said you got to go. You can, you can hop out whenever, man. We yeah, enjoyed having great you. Great talking to you again, guys. Um, thanks. I'll Bye, see you next Sasha. week. Bye. See you, see you, Sasha. Yeah, it's almost like it's it's like learning how to watch without any sort of judgment. No, it's just kind of observing for what it is, what's actually occurring uh, without, you know, this is my session, like this is my activity that it's like, no, it's like what is actually happening in reality? Um, what's impacting what? Um, what are the, the big kind of... Uh, factors driving the game in a certain way over another it's it's uh yeah the ups the whole idea of observation is is difficult um that's interesting that you had to run the session without so the talking was just not talking at all and you would just like point and wow yeah Yeah, yeah, right.
Knock-on. That's so cool. Oh man, this is so good though, because this is ex like a constraints-led approach for coaching and coaches to learn to adapt. Yeah, you know, that's a hundred percent. If anyone's listening to that, I mean, I'm gonna try this soon. You know, I think this is a great. Yeah, practice. I like that also. It's cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Emergent solutions are going to happen that you've never planned for. Yeah. It's a great point. Yeah. Altitude.
That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer. Obviously, um, where my where my head goes, however, where my head goes is um, how can we create as many different, not like excessively, but can we create different altitudes for them to play in and have to adapt between them? You know, so not getting used to just Austrian altitude not getting used to just hunger and it, it's mm. the ability to adapt to a new one and i view skill this way too and i know these things are kind of interrelated but it's about adapting to the circumstance and if this is like a physical adaptation with like your lungs and your your nervous system and you know this these kinds of physiological things like if you can do that to an extent um between different places i think you might have a better ability to do that at a new one and that's like the test for transfer and skill like when they do skill testing trainings in these like um these research papers and stuff they they train them in different approaches right but then they they bring about a new environment for them to adapt to and then that's where they measure transfer they don't measure transfer in the same environment that they they trained in because that would that'd be that wouldn't really help you it'd be kind of biased you know what i mean and so I think this ability to adapt to new things is is key here. Yeah, it's super it's super interesting. I I would have thought yeah, I mean I think like specificity there kind of maybe comes into the play. I mean the point that you make is a good one. I like Austria the mountains probably different than Mexico in the mountains. So um yeah, I was watching actually the other day the it's a good good documentary the one of uh bilardo who was the coach of argentina in 86 um and he actually argentina is the first ones to get the mexico uh part of it for that reason because they knew they had needed to adapt to the altitude i think they were there like a month before everyone else um and they would just train at like the club club america like facilities um but yeah i know it's i know that was like a lot of Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What happened? Oh, well.
to them. Uh, so, yes. Right. 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 Yes. The other thing that maybe comes to mind, and I don't know, I mean, maybe this, I know Hungary was very, very good, like in the 80s. So maybe they were, uh, and then this is, I don't, I would be interested to get your take, but I, I know back then also, like while I was watching this show, they still had a lot of like conventional kind of training stuff that they would do. Like they would have the tree. I saw they had trees and the players like run, running in between the trees. And like, there oh, was man. still a thought that like there needed to be some sort of physical preparation before you could like play the game, is that, you know? Is that true? And That's I'm amazing. very much like the believer that like running without any sort of decision or stimulus is very different to like the running that occurs in the game, you know? And there's a saying that's like, um, they don't get tired because if, if someone was tired playing football, they would literally die. They wouldn't be able to move, right? Like that would be, that's, they're tired. Uh, what fatigues is like the ability, I think, to consciously keep making good decisions. So um, I'm curious if like maybe a lot of the teams that try to prepare, like they, it, they, they did too much maybe. Like they tried to prepare for the Mexico World Cup. They're like, oh, yeah, let's go run in the altitude. Let's do all these things. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> that's good stuff man i'm um i'm wondering how much longer we should go here anybody got anything last they want to get off their chest i think we've uh we've gone a, w a little bit away from load but we've we've gripped on just enough you know it's still with us but uh we've gone off into some new directions here i think the message that i would just emphasize that i think we we got to is like um observe like add context to the numbers add context to what you're doing and i think as long as you do that i think you can stay close to 
the reality of what's going on in the training sessions with your team. The moment that you try to just simplify things into a number or something is, I think, where you can start to run into some problems. Yeah, and the last thing I want to say is after hearing Ivan talk about the like kind of style of play um, with, with, with the Russian team, right? And the high pressing and the making the field smaller and the managing small spaces when you have the ball, right? And the way that looks and the way the players physically behave and that is something to prepare for as well. So when you're designing your, your training week, it's also in reference to how you see the game as the coach, I think. And also in response to the social cultural constraints of the community that you're in, in the form of life that you're in. And we didn't really talk into specifics of how we would design the week in terms of methodological concepts and um, team like shared uh, principles and affordances responsive to that. You know, we didn't talk about that so much, but I think that's an important thing to consider when you're designing the, the training week and you're setting up the week in a way that is improving their adaptation under certain intentions that the team is sharing. And um, if they're a little bit older, which I'd call the performance training phase, then you are talking about exploiting affordances that are already that you already have planned to exploit as a team together. You know what I mean? Um, rather than mm -hmm. searching the space for new ways that what you might do like in the middle of the week, at the beginning of the week, um, where you're kind of learning to have dexterity in your skills. I think that is related to this um, periodization of skill training stuff from Fabian Oat and guys like that, that are they're working on ways to kind of have an ecological way of doing this. Um, and that's kind of one thing I wanted to mention at some point, but I think that's kind of the direction this needs to go, less so about numbers, but more so about the the, the skills that the players are doing in the, in the moment that we're observing. And the skill adaptability is all about observation and seeing what like skills they have and seeing what affordances the team is interacting with like in the moment you know like it's all this fancy language for this stuff that you can observe directly you know and that that's what's cool is what is happening in front of you is the standard of measurement for how to design your training week in relation to the principles that you have the team sharing together Or they, they defend some stuff too. Usually, they defend some stuff sometimes. Like the book has had some criticisms, and like yeah, we're gonna add some stuff to kind of defend that or add to it, add to the the narrative. <laughs> What's the book, man?
I uh, can't wait. Oh, that's wonderful, man. I would I think we could have a whole like other that. podcast about that quote right there. That that was so good. And man, yeah. uh, we got we got to end it before we get going again. But um great great <laughs> job, guys, and looking forward to the next one. Awesome. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. See ya.